Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. It's been a while since I've done one of these. It's been about a week and a half. Been having some some things going on. Had a trial that I just went through last week. Prepping for the trial the week before that. And in the meantime, we've also gotten some new equipment. This audio sounds so much so much more enjoyable already. Uh, we got a new mic, new headphones. So we're slowly getting to some of the things that we've been we've been talking about for months. I've been saying we need to get some new equipment. Eventually, what I hope will happen is we also get like a a, a plug in where you can have an additional mic, and then we can get to a point where we have multiple people doing these readings. We can have different types of content coming out, and really, I just think all of that is just about uh, patience and persistence and progression. And I want to thank people who've been continuing to listen to the Rafa Reading Daily podcast. I haven't been doing a very good good job these last couple of weeks of publicizing it. However, we have continued to release them, which has, I think, been one of the more important things that I've been trying to get to is being able to have road bumps happen and us have pre-recorded episodes of Rafa Reading Daily that is already queued to go out. And so that's also been an accomplishment as well. Want to get back to trying to record the Social Construct, the Leslie podcast as well. We put one episode out, but never did another one after that. And again, it's just about uh, it's just about staying patient and staying persistent. And eventually, everything will will fall in place and will come together. So we're going to continue reading "Evicted" by Matthew Desmond, a book that I thought I would be finished reading by now. And we are currently on part two of this book, and we are on chapter 10 of this book. Chapter 10 is entitled, The Hood is Good. Excuse me, chapter 11 of this book. Chapter 11 is entitled, The Hood is Good. All right. As her plane touched down, Sharina looked out the window and sighed. That morning, she and Quentin had been in Jamaica. Milwaukee looked chilly and damp, like a left-out dish rag. Sharina switched her phone back on and saw that she had 40 40 voice messages. Jamaica had been amazing. Sharina and Quentin took long walks on warm, white beaches, chartered a glass-bottomed boat, and zipped around the Caribbean on jet skis. Quentin bought a walking stick and had it engraved. Sharina got her hair done in two thick braids that met in the back. They had stayed for eight days. Sharina and Quentin always planned their vacations so that they were back before the first of the month when their days went long with eviction notices to pass out, new moves to manage, and rents to collect. Because most of their tenants didn't have bank accounts, collecting a rent was face-to-face, collecting rent was a face-to-face affair. A few of Sharina's voice messages were from Tabitha, a social worker who made weekly visits to the Hingston's house. When Sharina returned her call, Tabitha cited the plumbing situation at 18th and Wright and tried to advocate for some repairs. Not long after Doreen paid a plumber herself, the pipes backed up again. Serena was not hearing it. Quote, I can't believe that you are on my phone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Quote, I can't believe that you are on my phone complaining to me about the sink being stopped up when they're the ones doing it. End quote. Serena said, quote, they pull hinges off doors have clothes piled to the ceiling. The whiff of shit hits you in the face when you open the door. I cannot believe that your organization is allowing her to have a house that looks like that. End quote. Then Tabitha made a mistake. 
telling Sharina that Doreen was looking for another place. Sharina got off the phone and headed for the courthouse. If Doreen was withholding rent so the family could move, Sharina would call her bluff. Sharina paid the fee and scheduled a court date, giving Doreen an open eviction on CCAP. Now moving would be much harder. If the Hingstons were going to go, Sharina decided, that would go on her terms. After Quentin delivered the pink papers, Doreen called Sharina to clear things up. Quote, we do need a bigger place, end quote, she said. Quote, Natasha fitting to have a baby, and we can't be stacked up in here like this. But I didn't mean immediately. I can't see myself trying to move in the middle of the winter. She be, she be delivering sometime in May. Maybe then we can try to find something bigger, end quote. Sharina told Doreen she wasn't calling off the eviction. Quote, I got you, end quote, Doreen said. Quote, I got your money, end quote. But Sharina refused to accept it, citing the stress the family was putting, her, was putting on her unit. Quote, what if the state come up in there, end quote, she asked. Quote, then they shutting my place down and we all going to be in trouble. I can't have all those people living in my apartment like that. Too much wear and tear, end quote. All Doreen could do was pray that Sharina would change her mind before they met in eviction court. On the first of the month, Sharina and Quentin flirted and giggled as they drove from one property to the next. They had brought some of Jamaica back with them. Their skin was sun-kissed and their spirits were buoyed. They caught Ricky one leg outside, waiting for UPS to deliver a computer for his daughter. Quote, a computer, end quote. Sharina asked when Quentin climbed back in the Suburban. Quote, yeah, end quote. Quentin smiled. Quote, see, see, he got money for a new computer, but not for the rent. That's okay, because I got him. The rent's going up, end quote. Sharina paused for effect. Quote, inflation, end quote. Laughter filled the suburban as it pulled onto the street. Quentin's seat was leaned so far back he was resting more on his hip than his rump. Air freshener swayed from his rearview mirror and a large speaker in the back thumped bass whenever one of them was not on the phone, which was almost never. As night fell, Quentin took a call from a rooming house tenant touching his Bluetooth earpiece. When the call ended, he said, quote, They money burning the hole in their pockets. You know, they got habits, end quote. Quentin parked in front of the rooming house and went through a small ritual. He tucked his chains into his shirt, removed his pinky ring, and slid a sweatband over his thick bracelet. He had learned that, quote, some people think you're out to take their rent money to buy, you know, fancy things, end quote. A tenant had recently pointed to Quentin's bling and said, quote, you just want to collect my rent to live your own life, end quote. When he relayed the story to Sharina, she shrugged and said, quote, how else we supposed to do it, end quote, to live. She meant the rooming house. The rooming house tenants had smoked something, but had not yet run through the rent money. The place was filled with music, laughter, and that carefreeness the benefits of the first of the month bring and the bills of the fifth of the month shoo away. The only tenant who appeared sober was an old man who had just moved in. He sat on his bed, shirt buttoned to the top. Quote, coming at night, huh? End quote. He asked with the Mississippi draw. Quote, when do you want to pay your rent? End quote. Quentin replied, quote, I'm ready. Always owing something. End quote. Up walked another tenant with glazed over eyes. Quote, hey, nigga, 
end quote. He addressed Quentin, holding an unlit cigarette and leaning on the wall for support. Quote, I, I be at the bar, man. They be fucking with me, man. End quote. Quote, straight up? End quote, Quentin asked, sliding the old man's money in his pocket and heading for the door. Back in the suburban, Quentin presented Sharina with a wad of cash. She had to admit it. Quote, those crackheads pay the rent. End quote. They laughed. <clears throat> it was almost 9 p.m. when Sharina asked Quentin to drive to the home of a new prospective tenant. LaDonna invited Sharina in and introduced her eight-year-old son, Nathaniel. A working single mother, LaDonna was eager to move. Quote, they shoot in broad daylight, right in the middle of the block. End quote, she said. Quote, we got a hiding place upstairs, and I'm getting tired of running up there. End quote. Quote, they need to get the National Guard up in here. End quote, Sharina replied. Quote, something, I'm leaving. End quote. Then LaDonna handed Sharina $500. Quote, I want that house and I'm not playing with you. So Friday, I'll give you another hundred. And then the following Friday, another hundred. And then the following week, another 175. End quote. <clears throat> Sharina climbed back in the suburban, which Quentin had kept running. Quote, she's crazy about that house. End quote. Then she went on, quote, there are so many rent assistance people. That there are so many rent assistance people that have been calling me. You wouldn't believe it, end quote. Quote, ah, they've been calling me too, end quote, Quentin said. Quote, for single families, end quote. Quote, for anything, end quote. LaDonna had a housing voucher. Sharina and Quentin didn't accept rent assistance in most of their properties because they didn't want to deal with the program's picky inspectors. Quote, rent assistance is a pain in the ass, end quote, Sharina said. Voucher holders made up a small share of the market anyway. Only 6% of renter households in the city and were not worth the headache. The, quote, SSI people, end quote, on the other hand, quote, now that is an untapped market, end quote, Sharina thought. But Sharina had recently purchased the house that LaDonna coveted, a two-story gym, and she was pretty sure it would pass inspection. If it did, the payout could be significant. With the housing voucher, LaDonna would pay a small portion of the rent, 30% of her income, and taxpayers would pick up the rest. Sharina's rent would be virtually guaranteed. It would also be above market rate. For each metropolitan area, the Department of Housing and Urban Development sets a fair market rent, FMR. The most a landlord could charge a family in possession of a federal housing voucher. FMRs were calculated at the municipal level, which often included near and outlying suburbs. This meant that both distressed and exclusive neighborhoods were thrown into the equation. New York City's FMR calculation included Soho and the South Bronx. Chicago's included the Gold Coast and the Southside Ghetto. This was by design so that a family could take their voucher and find housing in safe and prosperous areas in the city or surrounding suburbs. But the program did not bring about large gains in racial or economic integration. Voucher holders more or less stayed put upgrading to slightly nicer trailer parks or moving to quieter ghetto streets. It could, however, bring about large gains for landlords. Because rents were higher in the suburbs than in the inner city, than in the inner city, excuse me, the FMR exceeded market rent in disadvantaged neighborhoods. 
When voucher holders lived in those neighborhoods, landlords could charge them more than what the apartment would fetch on the private market. In 2009, the year LaDonna was hoping to move into Serena's new property, the FMR for a four-bedroom unit in Milwaukee County was $1,089, but the average four-bedroom apartment in the city rented for much less, $665. When landlords were allowed to charge more, they did. Although Sharina didn't think the housing authority would approve the maximum amount, she was planning on charging LaDonna $775 a month, $100 more than the average rent for similar units, but still well below the FMR limit. LaDonna didn't mind. With the voucher, what she paid was a function of her income, not Sharina's rent. Her rental expense wasn't affected. The taxpayers' bill was. In Milwaukee, renters with housing vouchers were charged an average of $55 more each month compared to unassisted renters who lived in similar apartments in similar neighborhoods. Overcharging vouchers Overcharging voucher holders cost taxpayers an additional $3.6 million each year in Milwaukee alone, the equivalent of supplying 588 more needy families with housing assistance. It's fucking disgusting. <clears throat> Sorry, I usually try to keep my comments to myself till I get to a break. I done had a lot of comments I wanted to make, but uh, all right, we're going to finish one more paragraph, and it's a change in the theme in the chapter. We'll have a reflection. The idea of a, quote, rent certificate program, end quote, was first proposed in the 1930s, not by some Washington bureaucrat or tenants' union representative, but by the National Association of Real Estate Boards. That group would later change its name to the National Association of Realtors and become the largest trade association for real estate agents with more than a million members. A rent certificate program would be superior to public housing, they argued. Landlords and realtors saw government-built and managed buildings offered at cut-rate rents as a direct threat to their legitimacy and bottom line. At first, federal policymakers disagreed and at mid-century decided to fund the construction of massive public housing complexes. But real estate interests kept lobbying for vouchers and were joined by numerous other groups of various political persuasions, including civil rights activists who thought vouchers would advance racial integration. Eventually, after America's public housing experiment was defunded and declared a failure, in that order, they would have their day. As housing projects were demolished, the voucher program grew into the nation's largest housing subsidy program for low-income families. In policy circles, vouchers were known as, quote, public-private partnership, end quote. In real estate circles, they were known as, quote, a win, end quote. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. Okay, so this is a this reflection is coming about coming later than I would like. I need to get better at timing these reflections. But first thing that stands out to me is how it's just again Sharina and Quentin's overall attitude towards the the tenants, whether it's them making sure that they come back on from vacation in time. Uh, to to go through and collect rent because they know that people don't have bank accounts to send money to them, whether it's because they, uh, the Sharina speaking about increasing the rent because one of the people bought their kids a computer, but they hadn't paid her rent. Uh, and so she, you know, joked about inflation and raising the rent prices, uh, whether it's the Quentin hiding his jewelry and tucking his jewelry and stuff in when he goes into places 
or it's Sharina out of spite trying to have the the Hinkstons kicked out of the the home that they lived in. Uh, and then finally, this, which is this is a, a very new thing for me. And that's uh, let's let's finish this one thought. Sometimes I do that. I go into a second thought without finishing my first thought. This fair market rent, uh, the exploitation that exists in that, whether it's them raising up the rent so that way they can make more money from taxpayers or from the government than raising the rent higher because it's going to be a voucher used. And so that way they can get more money from the taxpayers and the government than the rent is, than the house is actually worth uh, that, which is an exploitative, an exploitative action. And maybe by itself, somebody might not think that that one exploitative action is, is damaging. But when you see, that exploitative action be compounded by other people doing it as well. You see that 588 more needy families could have housing assistance if it wasn't for the extra $3.6 million that's being used from this fair market rent uh, ploy that is in, in at play. And so all of those things just amalgamate together to remind us about the, at least in the situations we're reading here, the inherent exploitative nature of the relationship between the landlord and the tenants and how it uniquely affects people who are the most vulnerable and the most marginalized and the the most needy in our society and uh, i think one of the other things that stands out for me too in this in this passage is reading through this and learning about things like fair market fair market rent i believe that was the term used Learning about that, learning about how these uh, these vouchers work and learning about the process that led to these vouchers be becoming so imminent. I've watched a, a documentary where they talked about the, the, the vouchers, the, the housing vouchers, uh, but I'm not very well. I'm not well versed in it. And I think one of the things I get from reading all these different pieces of literature is each book that you read adds adds another layer, another element to help you become more versed in some of the issues that are su surrounded in police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. Uh, and so let's continue reading. I doubt that we'll get through this chapter on this episode because it's these chapters. This is a longer chapter, but we're going to get through at least half the chapter and then we'll finish it next episode. Sharina bought the house she was going to rent to LaDonna a few weeks before flying to Jamaica. It was a large, light colonial-style home with a round turret and a generous porch. Someone had recently painted it black and white. The roof was new, and so was the water heater, and so were the wood-framed windows. The front door opened into a living room with a vaulted ceiling and an intricate mosaic, fi mosaic fireplace. There was one bedroom downstairs and three upstairs, which you reached by mounting a long, bending staircase. Thick carpet lined the upstairs bedrooms, two of which, judging from the paint, used to belong to children. The house was in such fine shape that the inspector told Sharina that he wanted to move in himself. The black and white house was on a quiet street in the inner city. Sharina judged the block stable, quote, because it's been vacant one whole year and not one fucking window was broken, end quote. And because, quote, the people lock it down. If you come over to the house, they out on their porch like, can I help you? They have their eyes on the street, end quote. Serena's new pride and joy had cost her $16,900. She paid cash for it. She had purchased properties for less, $8,000, $5,000. But none were as stunning as this one. A few days before LaDonna was scheduled to move in, 
Serena stopped by the house to check on the repairs. She walked through his rooms and smiled in disbelief. When the feeling welled up, she did a little dance. Since the foreclosure crisis, Serena had been buying properties throughout the north side at a rate of about one a month. In some cities, as many as one in two foreclosures was renter-occupied. The crisis had provided landlords an almost magical opportunity. Quote, this moment right now, end quote, Sharina reflected, quote, is going to create a lot of millionaires. You know, if you have money right now, you can profit from each, from each other people's, you can profit from other people's failures. I'm catching the properties. I'm catching them, end quote. Again, fucking disgusting. Quote, if you have money right now, end quote, that was the rub. The mortgage sector has shriveled up during the financial downturn in 2007 alone. The number of loan organizations fell by 25 percent. Fearing. Excuse me, fearing insolvency, banks still in operation turned into misery lenders, instituting stricter lending standards, requiring pristine credit and demanding large down payments. Quote, if you want a loan this year, end quote, the Washington Post reported, quote, you're going to have to pay more, thousands of dollars more in some cases, end quote. Landlords, naturally, were more succinct. Quote, banks went from stupid to stupid, end quote. Their assessment went, meaning that banks has fun and about face, going from being reckless to overly cautious. That was too bad for real estate investors not flush with cash because there were deals to be had. Gorgeous, unprecedented deals. Rents had soared during the run-up to the crisis, in large part because the housing boom and aggressive property flipping left landlords with bloated mortgage payments and higher tax bills. After the crash, property values fell, and with them, mortgages and tax bills. But rents remained high. In January 2009, the free foreclosure list distributed to Milwaukee real estate investors displayed around 1,400 properties, each listing for, quote, $30,000 or more below assessed value, end quote. The properties were ordered from least to most expensive, beginning with a two-bedroom unit listed at $2,750. Ten properties down, there was a three-bedroom going for $8,900. Ten more down, a four-bedroom for $11,900. If Sharina couldn't buy a property outright, she financed the purchase in a number of ways. She took out conventional, she took out conventional or even adjustable rate mortgages. When she saw a deal but didn't have the down payment, Sharina sought out, quote, OPM, end quote, quote, other people's money, end quote. Shorewood, who offered high interest loans that didn't require any money down, but instead placed a lien on the property. Sharina put it this way, quote, usually the banks say, we want 20% down. Here's this private money guy saying, hey, I'll give it to you, but your interest rate is going to be 12% and you have to give me this money back within six months or a year, end quote. If Serena defaulted, she would lose the house to the private lender. The same thing that made home ownership a bad investment in poor black neighborhoods, depressed property values, made landlording their potential lucrative one. Property values for similar homes were double or triple in white middle-class sections of the city, but rents in those neighborhoods were not. A landlord might have been able to fetch $750 for a two-bedroom unit in the suburb of Wauwatosa and only $550 for a similar unit in Milwaukee's poverty-stricken 53206 zip code. But the Wauwatosa property would have come with a much higher mortgage payment and tax bill, 
not to mention higher standards for the condition of the unit. When it came to return, when it came to return on investment, it was hard to beat owning property in the inner city. Quote, you buy on the north side because they cash flow nicely, end quote, said one landlord with 114 central city units. Quote, in Brookfield, I lost money. But if you do low income, you get a steady monthly income. You don't buy properties for their appreciative value. You're not in it for the future, but for now, end quote. Sharina looked for properties that would give her a cash flow of at least $500 a month after expenses. The house LaDonna would rent easily cleared that bar. Sharina owned it free and clear. The repairs only set her back $1,500, and the monthly rent would be $775. If the house inspired Sharina to dance, it was because she knew she would recoup her total investment in about two years. She was used to this rate of return. Shortly after buying the black and white house, she bought a duplex off Keefe Avenue for $8,500, repairing it for $3,000. It would take only eight months to make that money back. After that, quote, it just cashed out, end quote. Sharina estimated her net worth at around $2 million, but equity was icing on the cake. The real money was, in ma- the real money was made in rents. Every month, Sharina collected roughly $20,000 in rent. Her monthly mortgage bills rounded out to $8,500. After paying the water bill, Sharina, who owned three dozen inner city units, all filled with tenants around or below the poverty line, figured she netted roughly $10,000 a month, more than what Arlene, Lamar, and many of her other tenants took home in a year. As Sharina liked to put it, quote, the hood is good. There's a lot of money there, end quote. And we're going to end this episode here and we will come back tomorrow to wrap up this chapter. And I think what 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 I'll leave this this episode with and what I hope you leave this episode with is that when we speak about racial injustice, when we speak about people from communities that have been historically exploited, historically oppressed, historically marginalized, what's important to understand about the time period we live in right now in the 21st century is that there are people that from within those communities more than at any other time period who have found ways to profit off of being from a community that has been exploited, oppressed, or marginalized, that have found ways to make money off of uh, being from a, a community that has that is vulnerable. And all skin folk ain't kin folk. And we have to get into a place where because we are a people where because we are a people that have watched capitalism devalue some of our some of the people in our community that had the most potential to assist the community we watched uh them put to the side wanting to help uh their fellow black person or fellow black woman fellow black man Uh, in exchange for wanting to put more money in their pockets, we can't fall under the guise of thinking that just because uh, it is a black person who is the landlord, it means that it is not an exploitative relationship because it is a black person who's the police officer. It means it's not a predatory relationship because it's a black person who's the politician. It means it's not a, uh, a duplicitous relationship Uh, that, that one of the things that this system does, one of the things that this country does better than anything else is, is adjust and is to change without progressing. And 
50 years ago, 60 years ago, it was a white person who was in a position to be exploiting these neighborhoods, these communities. And we see now that it is black people who are in those positions. And it's also important to, re to point to remember and to point this out that the, even the, the money still trickles out to white people. If you, the, the, the water bill is, I doubt that the people making the money from the water, the government makes the money from the water bill. The city makes the money from the water bill. Uh, that's the white power structure. Uh, the, you see that the white power structure can come into her apartments into these homes at any time and, and foreclose them. That's again, the power of the white power structure. She's talking about having to go to banks and go into private investors. A nice amount of them are going to be white. That's again, the white power structure. So even though she may be the middleman in this exploitative relationship, uh, and being black, the person at the highest, on the highest rung of this exploitative ladder is rarely, if ever black in this country. Uh, so please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Be on the lookout for tomorrow's episode of Ralph for Reading Daily as we continue reading Evicted by Matthew Desmond.